The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com I have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. Iraq collapsing, Syria collapsing, Yemen collapsing, Libya collapsing, and everything else in turmoil. Nothing to do with us. Hey everyone, welcome to Where We Are with Terrence Eagle, a podcast that breaks down what happened in the world in the last seven days and how we got here. On today's episode, we have made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Does every member of society know what to do? Is every health worker protected? Does every health worker know this disease? If you answer no to any of those questions, you're not ready. So this is the question. We're, we're in the land of the unknown. It's like a movie. So the coronavirus is pretty much all anyone can talk about this week. So let's just get right to it. Uh, so Dr. Honigsbaum, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for inviting me back on air. Yeah, it's great to have you, although not under the best of circumstances. For those listeners that are unaware, Dr. Honigsbaum was on the podcast at the end of January right when this coronavirus issue was just starting to kind of take hold. Obviously, I really want to talk to you about just everything that's happened from the last time we spoke to now. But I feel like we have to start with just this past week, because even in the last seven days, it seems like so much has happened in relation to the coronavirus. So do you think you could help us understand just what happened this week? What are some of the major developments? Well, I mean, so I'm a historian of medicine, as you know, Taryn, mm -hmm. and uh, usually the media, TV, radio uh, approach medical doctors, clinicians, virologists for comment. And I always know when we're reaching what I call peak pandemic panic, mm -hmm. because then they think, who else can we have on the show who knows something about it? I know, let's get a historian on, <laughs> or maybe an anthropologist. So my phone and my email inbox have been red hot, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. I've been on the Jeremy Vine Radio 2 lunchtime show twice in the space of seven days. Wow. And what's interesting is, you know, so seven days ago, we were still in the situation of, wow, uh, there's a big outbreak in Italy. It looks bad. They're locking down the north of the country. But, you know, it's not really going to happen here, is it, in the UK? Right. And in the space of the seven days, we've gone from that to, wow, the whole of Italy is now under lockdown. 
And then very quickly we went from that to, oh, I better stock up on a few mm. provisions. Oh, everybody's already got all the toilet paper. <laughs> yeah. You know, so we're, we're really living in quite surreal and an unprecedented yeah. time. I mean, I've had people say to me, it's like a movie. Uh, mm. And it is like a movie, but not one you could ever script. Mm. There's so many things that I want to dig into about that. Maybe we could just start with this, uh, you know, Italy, the whole country said is under lockdown. What does that mean exactly? So could you give us a visual? Like, what exactly does that mean for Italians to be under lockdown? I mean, it's not like a quarant the quarantine that was put in place in Wuhan. Because, uh, as I understand it, in Wuhan, there were actually curfews. You could go out, but people could force you to go into isolation if, if you were ill or sick. China is an authoritarian state. They can compel their citizens to do things. Obviously, Italy is a liberal democracy like the United Kingdom. Uh, and you, they can't compel citizens, but they are placed all sorts of restrictions. So shops can't stay open past a certain time now. The only shops that are open are grocery stores and places like uh, chemists and druggists, you know, selling essential medical supplies. Um, I believe you can move around, but you're not allowed to cross into certain areas now. Mm. So, so what we're really seeing is a shrinking back of social life. And we saw extraordinary scenes yesterday of people in different parts of Italy you know, going onto their verandas or, or opening their windows and singing. Which is really extraordinary, and I was quite touched by that because there's been so much doom and gloom, but I think this is a positive thing. And we saw the same thing in Wuhan. So this shows that there is this deep need for human connection, and especially so at times of, of, of trauma and crisis. Yeah. So you said that, you know, this is like watching a movie. It's very surreal. In the last seven days, in your opinion, what was the most surreal? What were some of the most unprecedented and surprising things that developed? Well, I think one of the most shocking things was seeing staggering pictures from Iran. I don't know if you saw them. I basically clocked them two days ago when the Washington Post published a story, these video footage that have been shot in and around Qom, which is the epicenter of the outbreak in Iran. And what they showed was a cemetery on the edge of Qom where they'd recently been digging these huge trenches. Oh my God. And they also shared footage of hospital corridors of um, corpses uh -huh. already cloaked in black, uh, you know, covered in sort of black uh, fabric, ready to be buried oh in these structures. So that for me was a scene that I never thought I would see again in the 21st century. And then I'm just thinking some other particularly stark things that happened in the last week. We've got the Europe travel ban to the United States that just went into effect uh, Friday, right? And then we've got the London Marathon was postponed. Mm -hmm. And um, 
maybe probably not right to put it under the category of good news, but uh, some good news out of this, I suppose, is just that the origin of the virus in China, it seems like cases are starting to slow to the effect that China is actually starting to export some of its medical advice and assistance to other countries that are affected. I'm mm. glad you mentioned that because I think this is an important point. So if you remember when we, when we spoke back in January, there was quite a lot of criticism of China and you know, the fact that they'd, they had kind of basically wasted three weeks uh, kind of first of all denying that there was an outbreak um, and then tried to silence doctors who were warning about how serious it was. And a lot of questioning of, you know, God, this quarantine is pretty you know, draconian. Right. But everything we've learned so, since from the WHO, who sent one of their top epidemiologists to China, is that what they did actually probably stopped it being a lot worse than it is now. And that we really need to pay attention to what they did and what they got right. Once they realized they had a problem, they threw all their resources at it and stopped social interactions as best they could. Yeah, and it seems like one thing they really succeeded in doing in China was they didn't subscribe to this idea of self-isolation and home isolation because they acknowledged that the way the virus is spreading the most destructively is within family circles. So they were isolating people very stringently. I mean, men were isolated from women, children were isolated from parents, and they were being housed in basically like makeshift gymnasium type buildings. I mean, obviously, a lot of this stuff is something that's a strength to China because they're an authoritative regime and they can use these sort of, they can implement these kind of rules pretty seamlessly. So can we take some of these lessons and implement them? I mean, what are the challenges for democracies trying to do the same thing? Well, I mean, the short answer is, is yes, because we have all the same technologies. Uh, the difference is we cannot compel our citizens. We have to persuade them. Uh, Foucault used this famous phrase that in, in liberal democracies, you have to persuade citizens be- to become doctors to themselves, a doctor mm. to oneself, which means that individuals have to take on board biomedical messages uh, and regulate their own behavior accordingly both for in their own self-interest, but also in the wider self-interest of the community. You know, so what I would like to see is people behaving less selfishly, thinking less of themselves and how much toilet paper can I buy, (laughs) and thinking, you know, does the old lady across the road, who's probably scared and on her own, need anything? Does she need it? I know, there was a very upsetting little piece, I think I saw on the BBC, of a man somewhere in, I think, North London who was stockpiling pasta, as everyone's been doing apparently, and an elderly lady asked him if she could have one of his many packages of dry pasta, and he said no. <laughs> it's just so so disappointing to see the lack of human kindness and selflessness in the face of a crisis like this. Um, well, can I just quickly yeah. say, um, Saren, and anyone who's listening to this, so I've been recommending literature, books you can read while you're under lockdown. Um, obviously, one of them is my book. <laughs> but uh, the book that I really recommend is Albert Camus' The Play, because why that book is a classic is he shows how in a quarantine situation, you see the best of human behavior and you see the worst of human behavior. Mm. And that's what we're going to see. Yeah. Yeah, I actually love that book. I, I also throw my endorsement behind it if you guys are under lockdown and trying to figure out what to do. So as far as helping people be a little bit less self-focused, I think younger people see themselves as not likely to have a serious reaction to the virus, even if they do contract it. So 
they're maybe not taking as many precautions as other people. Uh, what would you say to those, to our younger listeners who are thinking this doesn't really apply to them, any, any restrictions or precautions? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that is a tricky one. What I would say to them is don't think about yourselves. Think about if you have a grandparent or if you know someone who's elderly. This is all about dampening down transmission of the virus because you don't want to risk your elderly grandma or grandpa. So you might be fine. But the more that you can do to reduce the way that this thing is spreading in the community, the better it is for the vulnerable members of our community. The virus is teaching us to actually start to think about this world we've created around us. There are lessons for all of us in this. And uh, I think we have to study our own behavior and, and stop thinking only about ourselves. What complicates it, though, is that we are getting mixed messages, at least in the UK, from the scientific advisors. And the message they've been putting out this week is that actually it might be a good thing if some people get the virus. Have they um, said that? I haven't heard that. Yes, That's they crazy. have. No, no, they have. No, wow. no, they, they, well, it's not so crazy you think because what we know about the, this or any virus that's new is that the best protection for elderly people is if there is herd immunity. Mm. So the normal way you would ensure herd immunity is with a vaccine, right? So you give the vaccine to, say, young people, and in that way you reduce transmission and the risk that somebody who's vulnerable will get the disease. I even heard one um, a pandemic planner said, if we could put all the elderly people in Scotland, right, and put all the young people in the southeast of, of England and give all, you know, expose all those young people to the virus so they're inoculated, and then we could put everyone back together, we'd have enough herd immunity that would protect the elderly. Hmm. Well, unfortunately, we can't do that. We can't do that. So we're in a, a situation where the government's saying, we want to slow down the peak so that we don't have an explosion of people with severe illness, you know, going to hospital and overwhelming the service. But the problem is, how long can we slow things down before people get fatigued and then they want to go out and then we get an explosion anyway? So kind of what we're looking at now from a medical point of view is let's let it spread a little bit so that some people build up immunity, but we don't have an explosion, explosive outbreak. Then we like ratchet things down a bit and then we loosen things again. So when the scientist advisors to the government have said that, and I know they're starting to reverse their say on this, but originally banning mass demonstrations and uh, gatherings of people more than 500, et cetera, that kind of rule, that principle would actually do more damage than good. Are they talking about this concept of herd, herd immunity? Yes, herd immunity? Uh, yes so they've been talking about it. What they're doing, the problem is that they're not being frank with all their thinking. So what I would like the government to do is to stop treating the British public like children and actually share their latest data and their models and tell us up front what the worst case scenario is, what the best case scenario, what the different options are, and to treat the British public like the adults that I think they are. So what, what happened this week is people independently up and down the country, thousands and millions of people made individual decisions to regulate their own behavior, to social distance, to stay away from work. Businesses already said, well, this is becoming untenable. We're going to start working from home. And it was striking towards the end of the week in London, the traffic 
gradually died down. And yesterday it was like Christmas. You can drive anywhere in London. I cycled through central London. It took me 10 minutes less than normal to get where I wanted. So people are already doing kind of what the government hopes we will do, but was too afraid to tell us to do, if I can put it that way. So then are you saying that the principle for the government is, is it to allow a little bit more space in the reactions so that they can sort of inspire some herd immunity reaction to the virus and therefore resist saying things like, you know, no public gatherings, schools are shuttered, et cetera. Is that their their plan or is their plan really to say, you know, you should be observing social distancing, you should be working from home, you shouldn't be using public transport, but we just are afraid of telling you to do these things, but that's really what we wish you would do. Which one are, is the government kind of hoping for? Which one would be better? So, first of all, Taryn, I have no idea what their plan is. I think, you know, Chris Whitty and Vance are top-notch scientists, and they know exactly what all the different options are. What we don't know is, is who else is in the room and what the political considerations and the economic considerations are. Are we really following the science, as Boris Johnson keeps telling us? Because a lot of people have been really questioning whether you'd be doing what we're doing if you were really following the science. Mm. And I think we need to be aware. So the WHO was very clear this week. There are now more than 118,000 cases in 114 countries and 4,291 people have lost their lives. WHO has been assessing this outbreak around the clock and we're deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity and by the alarming levels of inaction. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Why did they announce it was a pandemic? The principal thing that that was for was to send a message to countries who they didn't think were moving fast enough or taking the outbreak seriously enough that they needed to step up their game. And it was very clear in some of the remarks that were made yesterday that a lot of those remarks were directed at the UK. Mm. Um, I think there's a real issue whether our health system will actually be able to cope. Um, so what we're seeing with the pandemic is that it's revealing the weak spots, the fractures in every country it visits. And those are, in some countries it will be one thing, in another country it's another thing. And even countries like Italy, that pride themselves on having the most advanced uh, health systems in the world, have buckled under the onslaught. So this is the question. We're, 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 in, um, we're in the land of the unknown. So this is the real test and the challenge uh, for us as a community now. So just um, in that light, maybe since we have gotten so many conflicting pieces of advice in the past week, maybe we can try to set the record straight to a certain extent and uh, give some best practices for how people should be reacting right now. So I'm going to give you some quick uh, Q&As if that's okay. Would you recommend people avoid public transit? Uh, yes. I, I've been avoiding public transport for two weeks. I have a bicycle. I will say this. I don't think the coronavirus transmits that efficiently in, you know, in a closed tube carriage. Okay. I mean, influenza travels much further uh, okay. than the virus. But certainly if you've been on the tube, 
and you're touching and holding a handrail, just make sure you put on some hand gel and wash your hands afterwards. Okay. Um, should people stop shaking hands and high-fiving or anything like that? Absolutely. They should have stopped doing that at least two weeks ago, okay? You can do the Wuhan foot tap <laughs> or the Ebola elbow. Okay. Um, put your hands together and, you know, do more of a sort of Eastern greeting. Oh, yeah. A nice Japanese bow. I'm a fan of those. And then maybe uh, most severe, just should people be avoiding public places in general? Stores, restaurants, that kind of thing? Well, I think you should think twice about whether you really need to go to a crowded pub. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm in New York, for instance, uh, restaurants have been ordered to reduce their capacity by half. I think this is a tricky one. I mean, people still need to go out and eat. Businesses like restaurants are going to go under if we just say no, no more going out. So, but I think it's important that we reduce crowding in those places. Mm. All right. And then not really on the advisive front, but uh, some other potentially misinformation that could be harmful. Some people would say that there is a statistic that you know 80% of these cases fall under the umbrella of mild, you know. So if you even do contract the disease, you're going to have a, you know, quote unquote mild case of it. Um, what would you say to that understanding of the disease? Well, I mean, what I would say is that I think we need to be aware that even though we're told, and there's no reason to disbelieve that this will be a mild illness for the vast majority of people, especially if they're healthy and they don't have you know, any compromised immune conditions. Nonetheless, this is a serious illness, right? So like any virus, if it gets deep into the respiratory tract, it can set up this very, very severe pneumonia. Uh, and some of the descriptions of the, the lung pathologies and the clinical course of this illness remind me very much of the 1918 Spanish flu, okay? So what people, what people usually know about that pandemic is it killed 50 million people, maybe as many as 100 million people worldwide. So I don't think that the coronavirus is going to be anything like that. Uh, okay, but it's good to know. <laughs> or, yeah, it is good to know. That's just my guess, by the way. But, <laughs> but what you do have to realize is that for those people who get these severe illnesses, it's it can be really critical, you know, how quickly they're able to get on a respirator. So I don't want to scare people, but, <laughs> but it is you something know, you take have it to seriously. Respect. We do need to respect it, yeah. So good news that at least you don't project it's going to be like the 1918 Spanish flu. And by the way, uh, to our listeners, uh, again, if you're self-isolating, looking for something to enjoy, uh, Dr. Honigsbaum did a wonderful podcast on the 1918 Spanish flu called Going Viral. So please check that out if you have time and keep in mind this is not a forecast of what's to come with the coronavirus. Um, but just what do you what do you foresee? What is what can we expect in the coming months? It's really hard to predict. Um, as a historian, one's often asked, "What are the lessons from history?" And you know, academic historians, especially, are very reluctant to say that because um, what history teaches you is to question the present. It doesn't necessarily mm. uh, tell you what to expect in the future. It's very hard to know because every virus is different. Uh, no two pandemics are alike. And I think that, quite frankly, this one has got quite a lot of steam in it before it, it, it fizzles out. So I'm very loath to make any predictions, mm -hmm. given how uh, rapidly the situation has changed, as you said, just in the past week. I think that we should expect it 
to continue uh, at least to the early part of the summer. I hope we will then get some relief and social life and economic and political life will, will return to something like normal. At some point, there'll be enough immunity that it will just become like another endemic illness like the common cold or like the flus that come around every year. But it's most likely that people who miss or dodge the bullet this time around will at some point in the next year or two years be exposed to the virus and they, most of them, as now, will have mild symptoms, but some people might have more severe reactions. And that's just going to be a new reality of, of the world we live in with all these bugs always circulating yeah. from one part of the world to the next. So that makes me think, do you, does it seem like we're close to a vaccine on the coronavirus so that we don't have to just live with this endemic illness, as you said? No, I mean, we haven't even begun clinical trial. The fastest any vaccine could be produced would be a year to 18 months. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, no. Okay, <laughs> it's good to know. I think that wasn't, I didn't fully understand the timeline involved of creating something like that. Uh, Dr. Heinungsbaum, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. Thank you, Darren. Always, always good to talk to you. All right, and that's our show. Tune in next week for another episode of Where We Are with Taryn Siegel. And stay safe, everyone. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.